gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 91 for Friday, October 16th, 2015. Still the year of our Time Lord, Dr. Emmett Brown, even though those things people are riding with wheels at these air hoverboards are not hoverboards. Uh, today we're doing two full-on reviews of Crimson Peak and Bridge of Spies. It is a really big week for movie reviews. For, for movie releases, there's a bunch of small stuff from festivals coming out. It's crazy. Um, yeah, but, but this this year feels harder to tell when movies are actually coming out than ever before. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I'm alone and I have to think of these things more. But like, maybe just have some of them are coming out in four theaters, and some of them are coming out in wide release. Oh, Who could true. tell? I do keep getting tricked yeah. by limited releases. Like, yeah, we're dealing with two films this weekend that are opening wide immediately. But well, I think, yeah, like films like. Sicario and uh, even the IMAX films like The Walk and yeah, uh, Everest. Yeah, I've had very bizarre platforming schedules. Well, I am the one talking now, so I'm going to say let's start with Crimson Peak, which is the one of these new releases that I have not seen. And uh, Patches, you saw it about a minute ago, so maybe you should be the one to set up what this movie is. That's true. Okay, so this is a film that Guillermo del Toro wanted to make for many years, I think. And uh, after after... Uh, what? Oh my God! I'm totally blanking on that uh, movie that we hate. Pacific, Pacific Rim. Rim. After Pacific we Rim, hate. we kind of we hate to this. Uh, yes, we clearly yes. hate. Yes, um, <laughs> we agree. We unite. Uh, so Guillermo del Toro, I know, wanted to make this movie for quite some time. Why? Because it's pretty much the extension of his house. The, the Crimson Peak Mansion is basically a wing of his house, uh, <laughs> based on the recent New York Times reveal of his like the room in his house that's always raining and has all the like forest acrobat stuff uh is do i get that right i don't know anyway what is what is crimson peak about um it's this gothic horror starring mia wazikowska as edith cushing she uh aspires to be the next mary shelley she's writing uh actually this takes place in buffalo new york in the beginning which Whoa. i thought was really the dirty buff yeah, I think you look at the trailers, you're like, oh, this must take place in Victorian London. No, yeah. this is Buffalo, New York in the beginning. But it I'm looks a lot like Victorian ghost. London. Yes. Um, so she's eating wings and drinking uh, Labatt Blue, which she got from Canada, her <laughs> recent for trip. The bills. Yeah. And uh, so she wants to write ghost stories. Um, and her father, uh, I guess, I guess fans that flame a little bit. But uh, she, she's a wayward soul. And what happens here? Um, Tom Hiddleston walks into her life because uh, Mia Wasikowska's Edith is her her father is a miner or like he is in development and he he's got loads of cash and Tom Hiddleston this guy Thomas Sharp uh, comes into his life and wants to get a little financing he needs VC for his crazy uh, he needs an angel company. investor <laughs> yeah he's he's got a new social media company aka a device that. Uh, pulls clay out of the ground to make bricks. Ooh, and, uh, very, yeah, very exciting stuff. But little do we realize that uh, his operation is part of uh, his manor back in London on the the, uh, the titular Crimson Peak, which is, so the clay that he's mining is is deep red, and when it comes out of the ground, it's it actually seeps out of the walls of his mansion because his mansion is resting okay, on but this let's... loose clay. 
Let's what backtrack to one. Let's okay. backtrack to That's one hilarious, plot, but... hilarious detail, which oh. is that Mia Wasikowska's character has been haunted by the ghost of her mother her entire life, who says only one thing to her when this creepy, hideous <laughs> CG thing shows up to jump scare, and she says, "Beware of Crimson Peak." Now, I know that Mia Wasikowska may not have had any reason to believe that this house that she was moving to across the ocean was called Crimson Peak, but it is nevertheless hilarious to see her. You think you could maybe put two and two together when Tom Hiddleston shows up with bottles of red clay in the ground. He lives on a cliff. She's like, what what is this one thing that I always advise not to do? There's one I can't remember. Oh, no. Uh, yes, so so plot is is maybe not the most essential part of Crimson Peak. It's all about mood. It's all about it's, there's a lot of camp. There's a lot of you know Guillermo del Toro is kind of throwing back to Rebecca and these other and Jane Eyre and these classic gothic horror movies. And you know he would tell you actually when we went to the screening we were handed the uh, preface of the. Of, of the movie written by Guillermo del Toro that was kind of explaining his history with this concept and how uh, sets and and special effects are supposed to be extensions or, or um, a reflective experience of the character's emotions. And you get that from the movie. You don't need, I actually didn't read the preface before the movie. Um, and, and you get a lot of that anyway because he's obsessed with this manner. He's obsessed with the psychological horror. You know, th- uh, as I mentioned before, the clay that this house sits on is, is, um, so malleable that it's literally squeezing it's gushing out of the walls of this mansion like blood and it's very campy it's very over the top and so are the performances and so are is every aspect of this it's all about this kind of theater of a gothic theater and what really happens you know i think the trailers play up the ghosts and there are many ghosts and many of them are cg creations that are spindly and and wild and are any of Mia them Zikowska's not running in the hallways are any of them jessica chastain how does she fit in <laughs> Oh, well, so Jessica Chastain plays the the sister of Tom Hiddleston. So Thomas and Lucille uh, Sharp, not, not Luce Seal from Arrested Development, but Lucille. <laughs> and um, yes, they are conspiring together. There's there's a, there's a grand conspiracy going on here. They need uh, Mia Wasikowska more than uh, Tom Hiddleston's character lets on. Tom Hiddleston is falling head over heels for her, meanwhile, and that's how they kind of get her on board. They t- they whisk her away to London, and then this whole adventure begins. Um, but again, the plot is so uh, tenuous. I mean, it, it doesn't really matter that much. It's all about mood. It's all about getting you there, and the kind of twists and turns that it takes to do so are part of the extravagance, are part of the camp. Um, David, did you like this <laughs> at all? I, I'm curious. I did. Um, okay. I think that I agree with more or less everything you said, that really... Uh, if there's anything worth thinking about in this movie, it is all sort of subtextual. It is all things that you might be able to extrapolate uh, from some of the plot dynamics. But the plot itself is is ridiculous. Um, it does not really like, withstand. Even the ghosts are. What's weird is well, that don't you, get you could, me. I mean, yeah. Don't, I mean, the, the I have some. I, it, it's frustrating because the movie is astoundingly beautiful in its way. It, it is uh, as Patrick as Patrick's patches said this. Uh, sumptuous gothic fantasias over the top uh thing that's augmented by cg and a set design level but still the imagination involved in creating this 
manor on this bloody mountain that has a giant hole in the middle of the roof where the snow can constantly fall. Every it's wall all... has spikes in it for some reason. Right. Why? I don't know. Just scary. It's spooky. And don't go past the bin to the basement, whatever yeah. you do, whatever. But, I mean, it, it all looks so beautiful that it's really a shame that uh, Guillermo del Toro disastrously chooses these these CG ghosts. I mean, like, I understand... Ghosts and phantasms have been a part of cinema from the very beginning, and, and filmmakers have always been trying to find the best way to present these apparitions to depict uh, the, the spirit world, so to speak. And um, I can appreciate on a conceptual level the idea of going the full Monty and really like you know doing something that is purely intangible, and that is to, to go with computer effects. I mean, there's there's no actor there, there's no uh, cloth draped over, whatever the case might be. It's, it's You can run your hand through it, and I suppose to some degree that's worth appreciating, but they're so shoddy and plastic. They're so fake. They feel so removed from the world that he's created, even as heightened and animated as it is. Uh, they still look that bad that I, I wish that he had maybe as an homage to, to the classic Haunted House films that he loves, films like Jack Clayton's The Innocence, which this reminds me of in some ways, but you know, The Innocence is vastly superior and, and much scarier. I should point out that this movie is not the, scary. It's not it's scary. gory and weird and yeah, gross, but it's not. And there really are jump scary. scares you can see a mile a mile in advance, but uh, um, it, other than those jolts, it is not scary film, nor does it really try to be. Um, but that really, uh, for a movie that's as surface as this is. I think that that was a really poor decision. I think that Guillermo del Toro seems incapable of of making a movie that works. I mean, like, there's always a <laughs> wrench. There's always something wow. horribly wrong. He, he's he, not. Like, I completely agree with you. I mean, he's I, a great set designer who like lucked into being like you know was given the keys to the castle to be a filmmaker. Um, and I think that his imagination gets the better of him every time. Uh, this is one of his best movies, but I think that's not saying very much. I mean, Pacific Rim is one of the worst films I've ever seen in my life. And uh, these, these uh, even the ones of his films that, that are have their charms, like Pan's Labyrinth and Devil's Backbone, um, and my favorite of his, which is uh, Hellboy 2, are, are still very flawed experiences, very thin, um, very simplistic. And I think uh, Pacific Rim really just uh, – Pacific Rim, Crimson Peak – just gets so much mileage out of its set design and out of its actors. I think Mia oh. Wasikowska is so good. I think Jessica Chastain and Tom Hiddleston do exactly what Guillermo del Toro wants them to do. I think, yeah, everyone um, across the board is really good. Jessica Chastain becomes more and more extravagant as this movie goes on. She really, you know, blossoms into this uh, this wicked creature. And, and later in the film, she has this moment close up on her face. I don't know how you make your eye twitch like that on purpose <laughs> maybe it's a cg effect but it's so tremendous like the little things that she can do especially i you know earlier in the week I talked about seeing the martian for a second time totally different performance from her i just love that she has she's not in the martian <laughs> shut up <laughs> I like there's no the way jessica chastain getting to go big because i feel like she hasn't been able to do that it's like charles lawton i mean like the performances they give in this film there's this very uh that that older era feel to them um, in a way that, again, the CG sort of detracts from. It's not a pleasant mix of the old and the new. It's really just a, a nice throwback to the old and something ghastly. It is it's uh, weird how many times they reference these kind of old 
effects or these old visions of of kind of specters of ghosts. You know, early on in the film, Charlie Hunnam is also in this movie channeling. Actually, the 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 true haunting of this film is Val Kilmer, young Val Kilmer's ghost possessing Charlie Hunnam. It's a really <laughs> creepy effect. I, I applaud the filmmakers here. Um, Charlie Hunnam is pretty good, but he sits. Mia Wasikowska down and tells her and this is the only time where the ghosts are really connected to anything else going on in this film um, that for some reason houses with like a certain type of soil under them <laughs> seem to attract ghosts and he shows her these slides and there's almost like a lenticular effect and you've seen these old photos of, of ghosts where I forget the exact uh, paranormal uh, text or uh, the word for it, but um, these these presences behind these people, and yeah, the lenticular effect comes up again when they're like flipping through books that have secret messages on the on the bind, and you're like, what is like, why can't this movie be that subtle? Why can't these ghosts kind of appear and disappear? With you know, it, it really is just Mama Two. Or Mama Zero, uh, a lot of these times with the the creature effects. But he plays with the magic or or the illusion of ghost stories so many times. There's none of that in the film. Yeah, it's uh, it's upsetting. This could have been a much better movie. As it is, it's it's really you know uh, sumptuous and 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 uh, candy for the eye. I mean, I think Del Toro was actually saying on on Twitter that it wasn't eye candy; it was eye protein. But I think he's mistaken. Uh, but it's, uh, as far as eye candy goes, it's, it's lush. It's a lot of fun to watch while you're watching it. Um, I was perfectly entertained and the performances are so good. The actors really give themselves over well, to it. That's it's why just it's another... more than eye candy. It's more than right. eye candy because these, this, these three actors and then Charlie Hunnam do really. And Hunnam, who is things. like, you know, has no business being, uh, on stage or screen, <laughs> um, is actually perfectly fine in this movie because he's playing the sort of naive, innocent type. He's yeah, he not the gung hero. Yeah, and he uh, he his character. Uh, and I will not reveal what happens, but I think that his arc is, suits his talents. Whoa, that's a that's a diss, but also really fits the film too. Um, um, you know, it doesn't cheap. It doesn't go cheap on making Mia Wasikowska a heroine in some ways. You know, taking it, taking her life into her own hands throughout this. When when the plot is revealed, she is a heroine, and I like that a lot. But I also like that. Uh, Tom Hiddleston and Jessica Chastain, they're all in their own worlds. They all make decisions. They all have arcs in this really kind of flimsy, plotted movie. Um, and that's and that's part of it. That's what they bring to it a lot. Drive. Um, question to wrap this up, maybe. Do you think Guillermo del Toro, I mean, maybe this movie will make money, maybe it won't. Do you think he's just going get, to get to continue making movies on this huge scale still? Well, he says he doesn't want to, probably to ensure that he doesn't <laughs> look like a fool. When fall out. Yeah, when he makes small movies again, he'll be like, yeah, I, I told you I, that was my plan. Um, but then again, this is universal, right? They're killing it. Maybe they're figuring it out. Yeah, but that, that doesn't matter to uh, whoever funds his next film. Um, you know, it could very well be universal, but Pacific Rim was WB, uh, and now he's over here. I, I don't know. I think a lot of it rests on how this does, but um, I anything that can happen that can prevent us from having to deal with Pacific Rim 2, I'm totally in favor of. That seems over, so well, I might not have to worry about that too much. I'm <laughs> gonna
Spies, from what I can tell, is a very different movie from Crimson Peak. A little I, bit. A little bit. So I'm going to try to describe the plot of Bridge of Spies without falling asleep, because as I uh, <sighs> have been saying since I saw this movie, I find it a little bit dull. Uh, it is based on a true story about an insurance lawyer named James Donovan who lived in Brooklyn who was asked to represent a Soviet spy who was caught uh, named Rudolph Abel. Uh, James Donovan is played by Tom Hanks. Rudolph Abel is played by Mark Rylance, who I have never seen act on stage before, but many people have, and he's, you know, considered one of the best stage actors currently alive. Um, so we kind of defend this spy in this kind of no-win case, and then because of that, is then asked to go to Berlin to arrange a swap. The, there is an American U-2 pilot who has crashed over Russia or over the Soviet Union. A U-2 pilot? U-2. Right? It's a U-2. U-2. You said YouTube. Bono. Yeah, it's a, it's a YouTube plane made uh, owned by Facebook or Google. Uh, anyway, so they're going to trade this American who's crashed over the Soviet Union for this Soviet spy that Tom Hanks has represented. So kind of the first half of it is like a procedural almost. There's a lot of courtroom scenes. There's scenes of uh, Tom Hanks' kind of, you know, like tough but good guy, Frank Capra-esque hero befriending this Soviet spy. And then the second half kind of becomes this more of a thriller where he, uh, or kind of thinks it's, says it's going to become a thriller. And, you know, you see these scenes of the Berlin Wall going up and then it becomes more of white guys talking in rooms. Um, I White guys talking in rooms? What, should they have swapped in, you know? <laughs> More diversity? They're in Germany. No, I'm not negotiating saying more diversity. I'm, I think the, the... So, I loved Lincoln, which is a movie of a lot of white guys talking in rooms. Lincoln had kind of a, an elegance to it, a drive to it. It had kind of a forward motion that I think Bridge of Spies really lacks, even though it is a spy story, which I find kind of remarkable. I think Spielberg is really interested in the history and the details of these people and in the kind of, you know, American ideals. There's a strong Guantanamo parallel running through this movie where they're talking a lot about how we treat prisoners on our soil, and obviously we don't do that anymore. Um, but I think its ideas are really at the expense of a remotely compelling story. I found myself so frustrated by the way this movie didn't move at all. Uh, I have no idea what the fuck you were watching, but <laughs> I... I mean, it's a total dad movie, uh, but so I... Yes. I love Lincoln. Um, and, but I <laughs> thought it was... Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's flawed, and I think uh, this is a movie. If any film that played at the New York Film Festival should have been written by Aaron Sorkin, maybe in the vein of Charlie Wilson's War, they could have used a little bit more oomph than the Coen mm. Brothers script was willing to provide it. Uh, you know, speaking of white guys talking in rooms... That's uh, that's what this movie should have been. I think its script really lets us down, and, and particularly in its final moments, has a lot of contradictory emotional beats that are not interestingly contradictory, but just sort of self-defeating. Uh, at the same time, I think that it is very engaging. Uh, I love this idea of Tom Hanks bicycling around East Berlin. I mean, the movie really picks up for me once he gets there, and they really, Janusz Kaminski's photography really... Uh, that's the stage. But for me, I mean, even more than that, even more than the simple pleasures offered by this film, uh, which I wish had been released two months later so that we could enjoy it in the winter cold and have some brandies afterwards, which is really the mood that it sets. I love uh, this as an auteurist uh, more than anything else. I think that it really clarifies how Spielberg, uh, his greatest preoccupation ultimately has nothing to do with daddy issues, maybe when he was younger, but has in recent years become about the value of a single human life. I think you can see it a little bit in Jaws, but really, of course, it comes to the four in Schindler's List, and then in Saving Private Ryan, and in Minority Report, and in The Terminal, in a way, uh, and certainly here, I think, and in Lincoln, to an extent, as well. I mean, I think he is uh, completely consumed with this, with this idea of exploring even... It's a rhetorical question, but one that he's not, you know, 
uh, which is important to note, but that he is very interested in, in exploring the, the value of a single human life, the price that it's worth to pay, and how uh, every life is... It's a very egalitarian thing. I mean, every every life is worth that of another. I think that's really the, the message of this, this movie here, and um, it's not so simple as that when it's presented in the film and in the context of his body of work, but I do think that... Um, it was very satisfying, satisfying for me to see this as a crucial addition to his filmography and one that, even in a vacuum, I enjoyed quite a bit because Tom Hanks, as the ultimate everyman, the only person who could play this role, kills it. Mark Rylance. So likable. So I think Mike, Mark Rylance is fine, but like everyone who's shouting from the rooftops about Mark, Mark Rylance are Oscar people. They're only people who see these movies and think about Oscars. Uh, that's Mark, the, Mark Rylance is really understated, which I really like in this well, He also like, doesn't a, have a lot of screen time. Yeah, <laughs> it's not a very showy performance, which I think is what's called for when you're playing a spy, and he's great but at it, but it's, I not, think, it's not the kind of thing that you're going to r- run out screaming about. Yeah, well, yeah, but people have been, and what I'm saying is, like, no, I right. think that to see this movie and, and to make such a fuss over it, it's only because they are uh, trying to find an angle here, like, ooh, a supporting actor candidate, um, which is silly, but... Uh, I, I enjoyed this movie quite a bit, and I have to say the first 10 minutes uh, are some of the most... In- Even though uh, Patches and I seem to agree that its best parts are in its second half, the first 10 minutes are as uh, like an homage to pick up on South Street and Samuel Fuller and like noirs of the 1950s in New York, uh, very Cold War-ish things about uh, micro... Filament and whatever you know uh, oh, the, uh, nickel, the nickel message right? yeah it's nickel. it's as exciting as anything spielberg has ever directed I and uh, could not i agree, agree I like more that opening, scene a lot. that opening scene is fantastic actual spy craft which you wish you got maybe a little more in a movie that's touting it's it's spy mm-hmm. uh through line but mm-hmm. like that i totally agree it's one of the best things spielberg has ever directed and he doesn't you know, use music as a crutch. It's in total silence. It's kind of shifting perspectives. I feel like it's kind of a a slow boil version of Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, chase scenes. It's a really cool scene. Um, and I want. I probably would have liked the first half of this film more if I got to spend more time in it. More mm-hmm. time with Tom Hanks and Mark Rylance talking bonding, understanding one another, these two different cultures, like the Cold War is so bent on paranoia, you know, Tom Hanks goes home every night and sees his kid, like, preparing to have the the atom bomb dropped on him. There's a lot of fear, and, like, this relationship is supposed to deflate that a little bit, and it just does, like, automatically. I don't know much about James Donovan, other than that he's a lawyer and apparently a really stand-up guy. He's perfect. I don't really know why, um, and I probably would have appreciated a little more of that, and then maybe getting to know them through conversations they have as they prepare for prepare for this trial, which goes by in a flash. Yeah, uh, the movie really wants, especially near the end, really wants to lean on this idea of this friendship between these two, and kind of the reason that Donovan is willing to go to Berlin, and I don't think, it's, it almost feels like they shot more of it than is actually there. It's really bizarrely blank. But yeah, when he goes to Germany and this whole you know, smooth operating negotiation takes place. It That feels more like Lincoln. That feels, and it has the kind of, there's a little bit of the slapsticky stuff where everyone's running around and trying to like convince people to do this and that to, to save themselves, to help themselves, and then to also satisfy the negotiations. That's really kind of fun. And the Coen brothers do add a little bit of, of comedy there. There's a very funny phone call uh, in, a, in a phone booth, and I'm trying to remember exactly what they were talking about. But quips funny quips a lot I mean, better than unbroken 
Sure, but I feel like there are a lot of scenes in there. Like, there's a moment where he kind of enters the office where he's finally going to meet with this guy who he's gone all the way there, and he's yeah. by this you know, very <laughs> l- like large, energetic East German family, and he gets Cookie. they're not real, but it's it just lies there. It's not played. That scene is a failure. It's really Uh, weird. And I just felt like it set the tone for all of these scenes in negotiation where you're like, not really sure who works for who. And he's going in and out of these rooms and they're talking around each other, but you're not given any signposts to what these conversations are about. You're not, you're not following a thread. You're just kind of sitting there being like, oh, okay. And let's just see how this turns out. You know, you know what I love about this movie is that Tom Hanks is a cold the entire time. Yeah. I think that's a brilliant detail. He's, he's, it, it so anchors his character as this guy who would rather be somewhere else. And it's just like a, totally normal. Uh, and I mean, what a pain in the ass it must have been for him to sniffle throughout an entire performance or shoot as long as this one probably was. But uh, it's, it's so much fun to see him do that, to have that little edge, a little chip on his shoulder as he's just like, I just want to go home. Uh, you know, it's it's such a fun performance. I, it is uh, not particularly flashy, but it's hard to imagine anyone right. else doing the role this well. It's, it's a satisfying, feel-good movie, and you're absolutely right. Like, I want to watch this around Christmas time, not right now for some reason. Like, I want to see this movie with my dad or my whole family and just, like, remember that people can be good. And then, you know, you're talking about dads not being a thing uh, uh, in Spielberg's text anymore, but this movie is still about a father. It's about Well, a I'm, not, I'm not saying they're not in his movies anymore. I'm just saying that they're no longer his predominant concern sure. necessarily. Or, but this is still about father problems, you know? Like, is this guy really going to abandon his whole family to do what's right or to do what he thinks is right? The answer is yes. Like people are firing bullets through his front window, um, and I and I think that needed to be maybe explored a little more. Just a little more of this tension. There's an interesting scene where after he's decided to take this case, or maybe maybe it's after the the actual trial but the police the police who are investigating the shooting in front of their house are giving him shit for defending a communist spy like i love that tension and understanding america at this time where everything seems so kind of cut and dry but here's here's tom hanks who's trying to be a stand-up guy in this crazy environment and then like two seconds later there's a gigantic um a plane is exploding in midair action scene it's a good scene that's a pretty good scene yeah it's it's a little it's a little weird it's to- from a totally different movie, but I think that is, in its own way, uh, one of the things that makes Spielberg the best in the game at this sort of thing. It's almost like, like an entr'acte. It's it's like the breaking he, point. Or, or yeah, I mean, like the, the scene, two. the scene, the movie could totally exist without that scene. They could just be like, "Well, this guy was shot down." But not only is that that scene is there to make you invest in a, in a visceral way in this right. character whose life hangs in the balance, even though he doesn't get very much screen time. And I think to that end, it's crucial. But also, Spielberg makes the scene so fucking intense. Really? <laughs> you're just like, you're like, oh my God, like, where, what's that movie? But then you, um, get, you get this guy and then also the guy who's captured in East Berlin, and they're kind of, they look a lot alike. They're both being held in these kind of anonymous rooms. You're told a lot about Francis Gary Powers being on Soviet TV, but you don't see it. But that's the idea. Yes, that's exactly, no, 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 but don't, let's not miss the point here. The whole idea is that Tom Hanks doesn't know who any of these people are. Right. Like, they're they're ideas to him. But like, like, why shouldn't we be allowed to invest in them? Because we'll be never, to- we'll never see the situation from Tom Hanks' characters, from Donovan's eyes, if we are too close with either of these characters. I mean, it's already, I think, uh, they're they're playing with a lot of slack to to have us in that romance angle that one of the characters has, one of the, the boys. Right. Um, I think that we have to see them as 
pawns in a chess game as we have to force ourselves to imagine the lives that they have beyond the text that I did because it's exactly what Dan wanted to do. Because it's a movie and you have to give us something. I mean, like... I don't know. I think if you're going to give us some of that, then you need to go full force and make them characters the same way they make Abel. That would have been a disaster. Well, they do. Actually, they do try and do that because kind of threaded into the first half of this movie when Tom Hanks is working on the trial are scenes with Jesse Plemons, who is being recruited as a spy and kind of going through what it takes to be a spy in the Amer- for the CIA, you know, they're trying. I'm, I'm pretty sure Jesse Plemons is just having his. Remember when I worked with Steven Spielberg? <laughs> I don't. Why is he in this movie and not the guy who gets kidnapped? That's I don't not know. Not important. But, but if someone's like, "Hey, you want to like work a week on a Spielberg movie?" You're like, "Yeah, okay." Yeah. <laughs> like, villain, get me off the uh, set of Black Mass, please. <laughs> He's begging. Uh, so uh, I don't really blame him. Um, well, yeah, I think, his, yeah. yeah. It just feels like a lot of half measures toward like the tightness of the story that it wanted to be or the kind of the big, rich ensembleness of the story that it could have been. It really felt stuck between those two things. I don't know. I mean, Spielberg directs the hell out of this movie. The compositions are beautiful. It's beautiful. Every, every edit is, is perfect. Um, but it's stiff because of it's, it's so beautiful. Uh, and I it's love rambling. It's rolling along. But after the movie, Katie, I think I turned to you and said, like, that was an old-fashioned movie. That is so aiming to not have to worry about the ADD of modern audiences that's just kind of rolling along at Tom Hanks's tempo and it's and it's awesome that Spielberg can invest so fully in him for this movie as opposed to what a modern drama has to be and there are so many supposed to move there's so many great Spielberg shots in this there's one great shot you can see in the trailer of this guy bicycling um, along the Berlin Wall as it's in the process of being built which is just a fantastically succinct way of um, showing the, the senselessness of that entire idea in that time. Uh, and there's another, also involving bikes, that I really, really love, where Tom Hanks is waiting to see someone in the lobby of an East German uh, oh, yeah. you know, government house and, and these kids on bikes who are delivering mail, whatever it is that they do, bike one way and the camera goes with them and then the other way and then back again. The fluidity of the, of the composition, it's, it's vintage Spielberg. Um, but and, I don't know if there's uh, a good Spielberg face in this movie. Yeah, now I'm I was trying just to thinking remember. that. I don't think anyone looks at anything in wonder. Really? Well, actually, there's a scene where Tom Hanks looks out the uh, train window on his way from east to west Berlin, kind of I think. Kind of horror. Yeah. There's a lot of vintage Janusz Kaminski blown-out lighting. Oh, so, so much blown-out lighting. It almost looks like the judge when they get into that, <laughs> that courtroom. I never saw the judge. I think he did. There was a so, lot of uh, in that too. So yeah, yeah. I, uh, I've noticed I'd never see Bridge of Spies again, but go see it with your dads, I guess. Well, the weird, yeah, the weird thing about Bridge of Spies, it, I do think it ends up being a little more pedestrian than it needs to be. And here's a weird thing: John Williams did not score this movie, no. and at times that's a good thing because I'm glad it finds more restraint. As I mentioned, the first scene is silence, and there is quite a bit of silence. But Thomas Newman took over, and I think he just Thomas Newman's it up, and it becomes. A little more, I don't know, pedestrian, just lifeless. It's just another, you know, off the conveyor belt a little bit in terms of the score. But I, mean, I, I did. has been known to put in yeah. his conveyor belt scores. No, too. it's true, but not for Spielberg. He steps mm. up his game for Spielberg. But you know what I did? I did love Shirley Bassey's opening song for Bridge of Spies. Uh, Sing it. Bridge of Spies, crossing Bridge of Spies. Yeah, that was great. You that's know, pretty good. Yeah, that's a good Shirley Bassey impression you're doing there. Going through it all again. Go on the point if you are never free to say this is 
Before we get to your lightning round answers, there's a lot of other movies opening this week that we wanted to just name check, and we'll talk about many of these later on. Um, Goosebumps in particular will be uh, waiting with bated breath to hear from Dave Gonzalez about hopefully next week. Um, also coming is Beast of No Nation, which opens uh, in theaters and also on Netflix this weekend. So you can see Carrie Fukunaga's new movie that I think is pretty good. Um, there is Meadowland, which stars Olivia Wilde. There's Room, which stars Brie Larson, which we definitely talked about in Toronto. And Truth, the uh, Dan Rather CBS News scandal movie starring Kate Blanchett. Um, a lot of stuff out there this weekend. Oh, or you can just go see Steve Jobs, which is expanding. Or something it's expanding. Called Banding faster than Aaron Sorkin's head. Oh, boy. Um, Whoa. So, before you go see all those movies, Patches, what was this week's lightning round question? Yes, it was actually in honor of Goosebumps, kind of. Uh, what book from your childhood would uh, will they never make into a movie, but totally should? All right, I have a good answer. Go. Oh, wait, but now i got to find the person who <laughs> actually tweeted it. I remember the book, but who the hell tweeted it? I guess we got... Oh, here we go. Uh... Yes, more Macy J says the Westing game for life. Love the Westing game. I, I don't know why that hasn't been a movie, actually. It's what is a that? Really good idea. That's this movie about all these people who are put in the will of this very rich man, and there's all these clues embedded in the will. And it's a, it's kind of, I guess, probably one of the first books I ever read that had like an elaborate set of mysteries built in, and you're kind of following the clues all along. And now that people know each other, but they all secretly know each other, kind of Agatha Christie ish. It's great. Read the Whoa. I think I read a book like that called The 13th Hour. Was that a thing where there were like different animals and they went to a party? Oh, no, The 11th Hour oh, by that Graham Basie or whatever his name is. And there were clues in the pictures. It's wonderful. More Clue movies. Like Clue. Where uh, was your pick? I'm going to go with uh, our friend at Michael Arbeiter who said uh, if Scorsese could do the cricket in Times Square like Hugo, that would be pretty special. I agree. He needs to make something totally fantastical. That would be really pretty cool. Huh. Um, I have not heard of a lot of these. So. Different childhoods. <laughs> so I, I just would read like Cormac McCarthy when I was growing up. You Are know? you joking me? That's At what age did you read Cormac McCarthy? <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, I never read a word of Cormac McCarthy until after I saw No Country for Old Men and read the entire novelization in the... Uh, Columbus Circle bookstore. No, not a novelization. book first. You know what I mean. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, he read day. the novelization. I read, I read. <laughs> 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 so much for the, the source material. Let's go. God, do you, you want one of like, the people who write Wikipedia plot summaries or just aspiring novelizationers? They're all so written like, by Alan Dean Foster. He went from <laughs> Star Wars novelizations to Wikipedia entries. Uh, well, I will go with uh, J.P. Gagan, JPEG Films, who says Goodnight Moon, because I know that book. And uh, I would love to see That's someone. That's basically Room, though, because. They yeah. Go, Goodbye, Wardrobe. That's sort of Wow. Also, uh, shout out to Russ Fisher, who mentioned a book I've never heard of, but now I want to. It's called The Snark Out Boys and the Avocado of Death. I don't know what that is, but it I It has multiple it. people saying that this is a brilliant idea, so someone get on it. Yeah, I might order that off Amazon right now. Um, that does it for this week's Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back next week, hopefully with a Goosebumps update from Dave. That'd be very exciting. Uh, in the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches. I'm the senior writer at Esquire.com. I'm on Twitter, at Mr. Patches. Uh, I'm David Ehrlich. I'm the publisher and CEO of Rolling Stone. And you can find me on Twitter at uh, David Ehrlich. 
And I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at VanityFair.com or on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you.